0: Okay, I think we can start. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we
1: can start. Yeah,
2: okay,
0: is. perfect. Yeah, so welcome everyone to Science Society. And of course, a special welcome to you, um Zdenka, and Alan, and Adri. Um, it's such an honor having you here. At
1: Very brief. Oh. We may have. I don't. Sorry, I'm gonna interrupt you, Katarina. I don't
3: know if anybody else lost the audio for you for about three seconds. I did, yeah. Yeah, we didn't yeah, hear you. So, if you could sort of, you said welcome and then we didn't hear you. C-
0: can you hear me now? Yeah, or is it yes? Okay, let's uh, f- sorry about that. Yeah, so um. Yeah, it's such an honor having you here, um, the three of you, and it's such an interesting field of research that you pu- uh, published in recently. So we are really excited to learn about it. And we usually start with like a short introduction and an in interview session, so we and the audience get to know you a little bit better, if that's okay with you. Um, okay, so uh, perfect. So, uh, Professor Zdenka Kuntzic, I hope I said that right. You did, Um,
4: actually. That was perfect. Oh, (laughs)
0: okay, great. (laughs) Um, Yeah, my my husband, he has a Polish name, so it kind Ah, of... (laughs) that explains it, yeah. (laughs) Um, So, um, she was awarded the Bachelor of Science with... um, honors and physics from the University of Sydney and then she did her PhD in theoretical astrophysics uh, at the University of Cambridge in the UK and um, she is now leading this interdisciplinary uh, research program um, that interfaces between physics, medicine, biology, neuroscience and engineering and um, it's, you know, really interesting uh, work comes out of um, this group that we will discuss today. And it's a highly multidisciplinary uh, strategy, which is really interesting. And uh, then Alan uh, Luffla, Dr. Alan Loeffler, he um, did his Bachelor of Science at Monash University in um Melbourne, and then later his PhD in physics at the University of Sydney, um, and uh, then um, Adri, um, if you could <laughs> introduce yourself because I wasn't able to um, to get a, a website from you. Um, let me ask you, where where did you go to school, and 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 what did you study, and um, Maybe we can start also through with Victoria, uh, the interview session with Adri then, maybe. Thank you.
1: Sure. So I did a bachelor in physics and a master in material science in
5: Madrid. And then I did a PhD in also material science and molecular science in, in France, in the city of Lille. And then uh, this project was part of a postdoc that I did in Japan in collaboration with uh, thank among others.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I found the the, the institute in Japan um, on Orchide yeah. But yeah, perfect. Thank you so much. And Victoria, do you want to lead the interview? Thank you.
3: Yes, I'm ready to go. All right, and we will begin with you, Adri. Thank you everyone again for being here. We look forward to hearing your research that everyone is going to share. And the purpose of this interview, which will be brief and painless, is to hear a bit of background about each of you, if that's okay. And the question is if you can think back in your lifetime and locate if there is a moment or a person or an event that let you know that you felt an affinity towards science. So this could be in childhood, it could be, you know, a relative or yeah, I see that you're ready to go. Okay,
1: please. So should I start the answer? I guess it was very natural.
5: I always liked it since high school, but uh, probably the, the spark that ignited the desire to do science was reading a A book by Isaac Asimov called uh, "How Was Called," "The Space," I think. It was um, out. uh, Kind of uh, teaching astrophysics, and that really set me up to to study.
1: And from there on, everything was kind of natural. Um, Yeah. I was just
3: looking for my mic. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your answer, Asimov. Was an amazing writer.
1: Yeah, I that's
3: think. true. You know, and yeah, he did. And so, actually, yeah, what? How was? Yeah, I
5: wanted to nonfiction that. books are really interesting uh, rather than fiction.
3: I agree. I yeah, that's I good was good. feeling that his writing is he makes um, his topics, you know, his nonfiction topics, feel as fantastic as fiction because of the way he presents so yeah what was it that that really got you from that that book is it with the was it the currents of space yeah Uh, uh uh-huh
1: different models and kind of
5: structure of the universe and it it really kind of made me curious about understanding better of course then my path was a bit different but Still, the, the curiosity was the same.
3: Right. It's. I think his style is such that even though he's informing us, he always makes us want more of this yeah. same information. So thank you, and Zdenka, can you please share your answer, and
4: then we'll go yeah, to. Yeah. Well, you. I well. I actually I resonate strongly with Adrian here because Asimov was one of my uh favorite authors growing up as a kid as well as were other science fiction writers like um uh you know Arthur Clarke and so on so I I had that side of things that was that I found really interesting and inspiring um but then going through school it, it wasn't I I was always good at maths but it, but because when you're at when you're at school as a teenager the, i don't know about you guys but the type of teaching i received in maths was very much rote learning and it and it always kind of i found it quite boring <laughs> so i used to do little tests for myself and try to do things different ways and you know a little bit differently after i'd done all my homework and everything but then when i it wasn't until i got to university and I, I decided to do a Bachelor of Science because that was the only thing that really interested me. Um, but in my, it was in my fourth year that I got to do a research project in physics, and that's when I got hooked. I was like, "Oh my God, I have to do, I have to do physics research now." And so that that was the that was the main thing. Um, and I just want to say something else. It was funny because in in my undergraduate years studying physics, I actually didn't have really any lecturers that ins- that really inspired me, but I had one lecturer that did the opposite. He was an appalling lecturer. And I remember sitting there in lectures thinking, if I'm ever a lecturer, this is how I'm not going to teach. Now, little did I know at that time that I was going to end up becoming a physics lecturer. So <laughs> I've come full circle.
3: That's a fantastic twist to that story. <laughs> yeah, little did little did that lecturer know that they were they were giving you um, you know, hands on education in teaching methodology. <laughs> but it sounds like you were you're already a natural um from what you had said about developing your own your own tests and things. I I understand that.
1: <laughs>
4: Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting that, you know, both Adrian and I had a sort of a similar experience uh, growing up, but it was kind of innate and native, and it was really just finding the best outlet for, you know, what, what we ended up doing.
3: Right. It sounds like the desire and, and pointed interest was already there. And that's part of what's so, can be so interesting about asking these questions to our, guest speakers is that sometimes you hear something that was really similar for you too. And it's maybe something you didn't hear before or it, it reminds us of how important it is to, to, um, you know, share our, our passions with, with young people or, you know, just to do the, the things that mean the most to us because we never know who we're inspiring. So, Alan, it's your turn.
2: Yeah, I think um I think my you know start is probably a little bit different than Stanko and Adrian. Um I only started binging Asimov in the last couple of years myself. Um but um yeah, I was I was much more into uh English and literature and and stuff like that when I was you know at at school. Um and the the real catalyst or the real point of change for me that made me um more interested in science was um i was 17 years old i had a a rare illness called transverse myelitis which pretty much rendered me um it gave me you know paralysis in the feet and hands for about it took about a year to recover from that so i was wheelchair bound for two months and then had to learn how to walk again which was lots of fun um highly And yeah, so that really got me thinking about, you know, if all of a sudden out of nowhere, a relatively healthy person, young person can just experience that. Um, What's actually going on in the brain? You know, why does the brain sometimes fail like that? What's happening there? Those were the questions that I kept like going back to. And that really took me down the path of that's why I studied psychology um, in my undergraduate um and then moved more towards the neuroscience side through my honors project and then after that i you know as soon as i left that i wasn't really sure what to mo- to go from move forward from there but i knew that science was the path that i wanted to go down and and you know not not only science but the interdisciplinary nature of neuroscience and psychology and and i was really into technologies and stuff like that and so Finding this PhD opportunity with with Denker um, and working with people like Adrian was was an amazing kind of um, chance for me to
1: explore those things as well. Thank you for t- sharing your personal story, and
3: i am, I hope that um, the recovery can be as complete as possible, and.
2: Oh, I, I'm pretty yeah. much pretty much a hundred percent
3: now okay. so that's good <laughs> yeah that's the, that is the um, the happy ending I'm happy yeah. good I'm glad to hear that and yeah I understand how that that can inform and influence your further research and and your compassion and empathy as well for how important your work is so at this point I will pass the mic to the three of you and let you decide who's <laughs> your order of speaking. And then if friends who are here share questions in the room chat, then we will be happy to field those for you. And then perhaps at the end of your discussion, have a and A. If anybody would like to come up and ask you any questions, then um, we are here to help with that as well. So thank
0: you so much. And the mic is yours. Yeah, so if you want to um, maybe summarize the work for people and then we can go into kind of a question or do you want me to lead the discussion with, with questions, what do you prefer to do?
2: Um, I think either is fine. We can sort of jump in and explain it, maybe what we, what our research was and um, Zdenka and Adrian, you know, we can take turns and explain what we were doing, if that sounds good to you.
0: Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Yep.
2: Um, so, yeah, I'm happy to start and then I can maybe uh, pass to Adrian. Um, so um, we, yeah, so this, this paper was part of my PhD project. Um, and it was the last paper of three that I published during my PhD. Um, uh, and pretty much the space that we're looking at, um, is something called neuromorphics. Um, so Zdenka's probably the best person to explain it in depth, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, neuromorphics is pretty much, um, from the, the term neuro and morphic is neuro neurons, neuroscience, kind of mimicking neurons, neuromorphic. That's the idea behind it. And so what we do in neuromorphics, the idea behind neuromorphics is try and replicate the brain processes in um, a non-biological system, sort of like mimicking brains in in non-biological systems. So um, the reason we would like to do that is because, you know, traditionally, if you think of uh, artificial intelligence, or if you think of um, any of these kind of computer processes like machine learning and and artificial neural networks they typically take huge amounts of data huge amounts of power um lots of these like really you know you you hear about all the amazing things that can be done especially lately in all these generative large generative models but you don't hear about the the requirements behind that that, you know um all the the energy requirements and so traditionally so, so, so the idea behind neuromorphics is you know the brain, the human brain, all of us, you know we, we manage to do amazing things, whether memory, intelligence, consciousness, all these kind of properties, um, at with very, very little um, energy requirements. And so the idea behind neuromorphics is how do we leverage the processes of the brain or the way that the brain works, you know the the neural kind of firing and the synaptic connections. Um that make it possible in a non-biological system in order to improve the energy of um, the energy use of these these systems and things like AI so that's kind of a general background into neuromorphics. Um, we specifically worked on a system called nanowire networks, which are tiny little wires that Adrian um, fabricated in his lab in uh, Japan. Uh, Maybe Adrian, you'd like to talk a bit about the fabrication process and what nanowire networks are.
1: Sure, thank you. Um, So that was really great introduction, Adam. (laughs) Um, So, nanowire networks are kind of um, Self-assembled
5: uh, network that it sort of uh, emerges naturally when you drop Casas mm, a given solid uh, solution with a lot of nanowires, silver nanowares into a target substrate, and it sort of self-assembling into this complicated network made out of uh, millions of uh, nanowires interconnected to each other randomly, and. Uh, of course, this, there are many examples of neuromorphic devices in which you know the interconnectivity of uh, the device is controlled or targeted to have a given topology in our case. The difference with our network is that the topology is uh, sort of self-selected in this uh, drop casting process. So we are able to approach this network with electrodes and we are able to kind of connect the nanowares. And we found that um, then we're sort of uh, organically responding to, to our inputs, uh, because there are many complicated circuitry inside the network and the given connection of two nanowires sort of act as some kind of uh, atomic switch. So in this case, uh, we are able to tune kind of the these neuromorphic properties of the network with different kind of uh, signals that we uh, impulse from, from outside. And, uh, in this it we've been for a while kind of inspecting different aspects of the network and kind of learning how to how the network behaves how how current surges in this network different aspects of the learning in the network and and in this paper we're sort of um, kind of trying to devise a new new paradigm of of learning and which is the end back maybe
1: Along can lead from here. Speaking of this, this learning mechanism we we put in network.
2: Yeah, sure. I'm happy to do that. Um, Zdenka, do you want to jump in and maybe cover anything that we haven't, you know, uh, covered yet? Or
4: um, maybe I'll just um, circle back on the little comment you made about. You know what neuromorphic means, and yeah, um, sure. kind of give a sort of a big picture overview of that because I'm Thank not sure you. if this group might be aware of it. So, um, for those of you who are not aware, there's this big field called neuromorphic computing, um, and the whole idea behind it is that we can uh, circumvent Moore's Law, which is now coming to an end, and the von Neumann bottleneck of standard computer chips by um, creating new types of hardware computing hardware that's more brain inspired and so that that's kind of where the neuromorphic comes from and very very broadly there are two categories of of the neuromorphic computing research literature one category uses spiking neural network algorithms uh, and and tries to implement those algorithms into some um, unconventional hardware Uh, And so that's kind of like a really successful area of research. And then another approach to neuromorphic computing uh, instead tries to uh, investigate and identify novel materials, usually these are nanomaterials, that exhibit really interesting uh, brain-like properties already, so that they already have some... Uh, they already exhibit some properties that are like synapses and neurons. So our research falls into this latter category. Um, and if you think about if uh, what these networks of nanowires look like structurally, uh, they have a remarkable similarity structurally with neural networks, real neural networks. Um, And Alan has done a lot of work on looking at that in his previous publications, but also more importantly, functionally, they exhibit some really, um, you know, again, remarkable similarities to the functionalities of biological neural networks. So if you think of a biological neural network, but strip out all the biology, we're basically now left with all the physical mechanisms that are contributing to how how neurons communicate with each other through synapses and the collective properties of that network as a result of all the interactions of those elementary components. In our case, the nanowires that constitute this network are analogous to neurons, and the synapses um, that uh, that you know that neurons communicate with are analogous to the junctions between these nanowires, and these are electrical junctions. Uh, they tr- they transmit signals between each other. Um, so uh, so very interesting physical substrate that uh, that exhibits brain like functionality.
2: Yeah, th- thanks, Denka. I think that that definitely helps um, paint the picture a bit better. And so, you know, based on what Adrian said is what we do with the nanowire networks is we we drop them on a substrate, typically a glass substrate, and then we can use electrodes on that substrate to um, send in electrical signals or uh, read out electrical signals. So if we wanted to send in some kind of pulse or or input to the network, we can then also read out how the network responds to that. So as Denka mentioned, each junction between the wires kind of has this uh, activation function or or kind of um, a a bridge that is formed. Um, And the network as a whole kind of switches, these these wires kind of switch on one after the other until they form pathways in the network. Um, And so we can, see how the pathways in the network activate over time when we send in electricity to the to the network um and we can try and understand you know how that you know how that works in the network and so previously we pretty much fed in um certain electrical signals to the network and it sort of did its own thing it had you know the pathway of least resistance or it it followed certain physical laws and went from one electrode, if, if we chose one electrode as the location where we feed in our input and we choose another electrode as kind of a grounding drain electrode, where the, the all the electricity or all this, the current goes towards, um, there's, we see a pathway form from that um, input electrode to that output electrode. Um, and that, that pathway was kind of a, the natural pathway through the network based on the the properties of the network, based on how, as Adrian mentioned, it, it self-assembles whenever we drop cast it onto the substrate. Um, and so, uh, you know, we had to find, we had to think about how to figure out what's going on in the network and how to actually train the network to do tasks with that inherent, um, pathway happening. But to me, the, the whole time that I was th- working with this system, I was going back to, to how learning happens in the brain. And in the brain, we have a much more dynamic, changing kind of uh, way of learning where we get strengthening of certain synapses and connections, and then we get pruning of other connections over time Um, you know, you get reinforcement of certain pathways. If, if something goes right, you want to be able to do it again in the future because it's a, it's a positive behavior. Um, It's a positive connection. Um, And if something goes wrong, you don't really want to have to go down that same pathway again. Um, You want to avoid that kind of behavior. So we see that very natural kind of increase and decrease in strength of synapse, synaptic behavior, which is much more prominent when you're you know, in in babies, this this pruning behavior is much more prominent in in young children and babies, but it still occurs throughout our lifetime. And we're constantly rewiring and um, reforming connections. And so that inspired this paper, um, which Adrian briefly covered, um, introduced, um, in which we tried to control the pathways that were formed in the wires Um, instead of letting them do their own thing we wanted to be able to say okay if we feed in a certain combination of electrodes we feed in inputs through them and we want to choose one target electrode on the other side of the network as our output but we don't want it to be the natural one that the network chooses we want to be able to direct the pathways that are formed in the wires to the one the electrode that we want. How do we do that? And it was a, quite a difficult thing to figure out. Um, Adrian and I worked on it, and, and Stenka obviously, and a, a number of other collaborators. Um, we had quite a lot of discussions on how to try and mimic this kind of brain pathway formation. Um, and we discovered that if you actually tune the voltages of the output drains. So if you have, let's say seven input drains and seven output drains, and you want drain number seven, the last, the output, sorry, seven input electrodes and seven output electrodes, also known as drains. Um, and you want the seventh output electrode to be your target, target output So, You want all the signals for a certain uh, input to go towards that output. What we did is we tuned the voltages of all the output electrodes to a certain uh, voltage. So we increased the ones that were not the target and we decreased the one that was the target in order to force the pathways from the inputs to the target output. And now that's hard to conceptualize. It's hard to visualize. Um, the paper has some cool figures where you can even, even just figure one, where you can see um, that kind of um, conceptualization. But the idea was we wanted to make learning in this system or, or, or pathway formation in this system as close to the strengthening and weakening of um, pathways in the, in the brain as possible. Um, Stanko, Adrian, if you want to talk a bit about that as well. Do you want to jump in?
4: I think, Adrian, if you want to add something from your perspective. Um, I mean, I think it's important to kind of set the scene here because we we were impacted by COVID, as as were many people. Um, our original plan was for Alan to join Adrian in his lab, but that didn't happen. So. Uh, I you know we really relied on 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 adrian to to do all the experimental uh measurements and everything so um yeah, perhaps Adrian, if you wanna say a few words about about that
1: Sure, no problem thank you yeah, so I will briefly
5: explain the experimental system and how we kind of train this. uh networks and what is going on here so uh we briefly mentioned and i, I don't want to be kind of very technical about it but this junction sort of behaves as some sort of switch uh, we can there are many name, ways to name it but it's some sort of um resistive switching threshold switch so basically the more current you inject into a given nanowire junction, uh, you create some sort of connection that, um, depending on the kind of system, this more stable, less stable. In our in our case, this connection is kind of volatile. And once the, the current, the impulse disappears, this connection sort of wanes away. Um, but the key is in the timing. So this volatility lasts for a few seconds, but then the information that we put in this junction last for longer so we sort of play well with this effect so the purpose of creating this task is about um, sending a given signal through selected electrodes and we sort of tune a different connection throughout the network and uh, we have a system in which we were able to sort of create this this signal from different input and output electrodes and once we select the electrodes we are able to tune the pathways that we create throughout these electrodes
1: so what is going on what's happening is that we can feed or input different patterns to the network
5: that means different selection of electrodes at different times and we're able to select one output for a given input uh, kind of pattern and in this way, we are able to create some sort of association system in the network in which we associate one input pattern to, uh, to different outputs. And this was kind of the, the basic image of training that we did in this network. And um, basically, one of these patterns was our target for training for different outputs. And uh, what we wanted to see is how, as I'm going to mention, how we can sort of reproduce these. Uh, neuroscience learning tasks, like the MBAC in this uh, physical hardware system? And uh, I don't know if Senka, you want to explain more about the, the task or what is this, this approach?
4: Yeah, I can say a few words and then maybe Alan can um, correct me. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, we really wanted to do We really wanted to show something different in this device that hadn't been shown previously on other neuromorphic devices, Uh, and so we looked at the NBAC task, which is a a task that's routinely used in cognitive psychology. The NBAC task is a task that tests for working memory. There's probably some people on this call that know a lot more about it than I do. But in any case, um, we we wanted to test the idea uh, that these, these nanowire networks have some kind of working memory capacity. Now. This wasn't just a stab in the dark because we already know these systems have memory. In fact, they have both short-term memory and long-term memory. If anybody wants to know more about that, you can um, ask, ask us afterwards. So, we already knew they have some kind of memory capacity, but specifically we wanted to look at working memory. So, we tried to implement the NBAT task. Um, and. Um, Alon had implemented a couple of uh, uh, learning strategies, um, supervised learning um, and um, reinforcement learning, um, and we found some we we found a really interesting result as a, 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 a once these learning strategies were implemented in conjunction with this end um, back task that that we were able to um, implement, and so perhaps yeah perhaps Alon this is a good point at which you can jump in and explain the, the working memory result, uh, and also then the additional results um, on memory consolidation and metaplasticity.
2: Sure, um, so yeah, so the idea behind working memory in, in psychology and, you know, hu- us humans is we try and, uh, we, we give in a certain letter or number or picture. And we're then given a number of interference patterns, so things that aren't the target that we were shown originally. And then at some point, we're shown that original image again, or you know, we're we're shown a, a, a collection. Uh, we're asked at which point did you see that image again? Something like that is a very basic kind of sequence memory task, um, like the NBAC back task. And humans, you know, were typically initially we, there was this number of which many of, you know, which is the, uh, five plus minus two or seven plus minus two. I think it's five plus minus two, um, which is, um, you know, up to seven kind of pieces of individual information we can recall in short term memory before forgetting that first thing that we were supposed to remember. Um, and so because we see similar kind of, uh, well, not similar, but we see memory activity in these networks, as Denka mentioned, and as Adrian has also mentioned, due to the, uh, there's two reasons we see memory. One is due to the fading of the junctions between, the the fading of the connections between nanowires, or the junctions, and the other one is the the recurrence of the system. So the the system is connected in loops. um, And so there's some kind of memory for, the activity that's happening in the loops in inside the the system um and so when we implemented this uh working memory task um we gave a target as adrian mentioned previously let's say the letter a was our target um and we then gave six other target six other presentations of uh different patterns um let's say the letter B, C, D, etc., up to letter G. And then we asked the network to remember the first, uh, we, we, we presented the first pattern again after a certain number of steps. And we wanted to see if the network remembered the pathways that were trained for that original letter. So when the letter A was presented, certain pathways would be trained. Then when the letter B would be presented, different pathways would be trained. Um, and so, what we wanted to see is if you trained six, up to six, other pathways between presenting A and then presenting A again, um, would the network be able to remember? And what we saw is that uh, in this, the network itself, it seemed to be quite a quick uh, drop off in memory uh, ability. Um, when, uh, sorry, in, in our simulations, we saw quite a quick drop off of ability to remember a number of steps back. So we saw up to three steps back at quite a high accuracy, but even up to five steps back, you could remember it higher than chance level. But in the actual network itself, the, the physical network, we saw that across the board, the network would remember at a much higher accuracy than chance levels even at this, even though it, it, the, the working memory still did reduce over time from over, over the number of steps. So if we presented the target only one step backwards, it did very, very well. If we presented it two step backwards, it did slightly worse and so forth and so on until we got up to seven. Seven was the max that we presented. But even that seven steps was still a much higher than chance level. And this memory consolidation concept that Stenka was was introduced is the idea that when we introduced something known as reinforcement learning into our, um, system and the idea behind reinforcement is that we improve, like we increase, this is sort of what I took. we were talking about the tuning part before we increase the potential current that can go through the target, um, that we've chosen and we, reduce the the total current that can go to the non-target, um, the non-target electrodes that we've chosen, allowing for the pattern that we want to be trade to be reinforced, to to have more current um, than the other patterns. That's pretty much the idea behind it. And when we introduced this uh, reinforcement paradigm, we, sh- we saw a dramatic increase in accuracy up to close to 100% accuracy, almost across the board. Um, meaning that the pathways that we trained were not only um, uh, improved, but they were actually consolidated into the network. So the network actually kind of moved that into some some sort of long-term memory, um, and and then no matter what pathway you presented to it, it would remember. No, no matter what pattern you presented between you know your target patterns, it would always remember that really well. Um, so there was some kind of mechanism there of of moving from this working memory the short term kind of working memory where we did see a small reduction in performance over over the number of steps that we would set back into kind of uh you know consolidating that into the network over the long term um yeah, so that's pretty much what we saw in this idea in this um in this uh, paradigm, as uh, Denka is there anything that you think I missed, or you want to jump in?
4: Um, no, I, I guess you covered it quite well. I, I don't know. Maybe this might be a good break point for Q and A.
0: Yeah, thank you so much uh, for this sharing. You know, your really interesting research and. The approaches you uh, took and why, and um, this network memory pathways you achieve to um, yeah to the structure and then also the levels of pathways um, up to uh, long-term memory. It's really interesting, and um, you mentioned that these sort of um, systems could already, before, um, uh, do the long-term versus short-term memory, um, which is really interesting to me. So, when you talk about, you know, the seven steps, what would you say, like, um, with the system, the energy consumption compared to, like, how many neurons you have and and how many neurons basically would this reflect like the capacity of the system if if it's possible to compare
1: it uh yeah sure um so i guess there were kind of
2: two different questions in in that um i'll answer the uh energy Kind of comparison first, Adrian can probably give a better insight into the number of neurons and and how much that um, that um, you know how many we used in that, so maybe Adrian, if you want to
1: talk about that and then I can answer the rest of the question, okay, sure, so uh, I don't know how to compare with actual
5: brains neuron activation but in this network we have a density of a, about uh, let's say one nanowire per micrometer square and the sample is about uh, roughly one millimeter square so we have millions of nanowires uh, in in a given network but of course not all of them are participating in current uh, at least uh, in the in the in the level of energy we are dealing or power we are dealing so i would say maybe if we have a 10 percent population of active nanowires
1: yeah that's kind of the the answer
2: yeah and so you know we use these millions of wires um and then being able to the, the idea is being able to control the pathways in which the, you know, which wires are active and which pathways are used in the network allows for, you know, more efficient kind of training, similar to what happens in, 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 brains. Um, and so, you know, in, in traditional AI, you get this very, you know, uh, weight based training across layers that requires lots and lots of iterations to, to freeze kind of tune the weights and freeze them. Once you reach that, uh, the ideal goal of the task. Um, which and, and that's what requires most of the energy um is, is training all these these layers and training these weights over millions of iterations. Um whereas for us, or in, in the brain at least, we kind of what we see is this this kind of trade-off where we have pathways are formed and and, and sort of we, we try and learn from previous experience and, and predict what might be in the fu- future and the pathways that we form allow us to better respond in, 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 in that way. And so what we wanted to do is move away from the idea of, of requiring millions and millions and millions of pieces of information to train a system and rather move more towards if we tra- ch- change the pathways similar to like what happens in the brain, uh, we can actually train the system using significantly less power um, and and you know significantly like Adrian was saying we used quite low current, um quite low voltages to train this which is you know already and and we it, it you know it was it used dramatically less energy than what might an AI system might actually um, require. So that, I think that answered part of your question. The first part of your question, sorry, do you mind do you mind repeating?
0: Oh, uh, yeah, I think both were covered, Audrey kind of covered the first part and then the second part you you just covered and um, because, yeah, I think it's it's really um, interesting the part, you know, of energy consumption reduction, but then also do you see um, the system to work better for specific type of input-output, or is this um, adaptable to any information processing?
1: Um, Yeah, so I think
2: what's really great about these networks compared to traditional AI, um, and we always come back to this comparison because that's what people know best um, in, in the field at the moment, Um, is traditional AI is typically used for, you know, pattern recognition um, in static data. So you feed in thousands or millions of images, and then you get some kind of pattern recognition or some kind of system that can detect big patterns. But it's actually quite poor, um, or it requires even more (laughs) crazy kind of expensive, both power and money um, algorithms in order to to deal with any kind of uh, temporal signal or kind of um, continuous dynamic signal um it's also really poor with noisy noisy signals this is traditional ai whereas you know the human brain that's our bread and butter uh, <laughs> time signals and spikes and 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 you know sensory inputs constantly changing it's not just static information that we're um uh, processing. And so that's the idea behind this system is can we mimic that um, the benefits of, of or, or the, the strengths of the human brain in in, in um, processing these kind of signals? Can we, you know, mimic these kind of temporal uh, uh, activations and, and, and information? Can we, it, that's, that's sort of the idea behind the strengths of this um, system and so while we did um use static patterns for this kind of training um there's no reason that that can't be transformed into a temporal signal and then trained in that way um you know that's something that we've seen in in other papers uh, and zdenka might be able to talk a bit more towards this um this this kind of temporal learning capacity
4: Yeah, I mean, we've used this nanowire network device for different applications for implementing sort of uh, different types of machine learning benchmark models, where we've delivered dynamic signals to the device and looked at how um, we can perform machine learning in an online manner. So updating, uh, in that case, we have external weights, we don't need to... Uh, train the internal weights of the network. We just have an external, um, like if, you know, in a, in a in a sort of an AI model, you would have an input layer, a hidden layer, and an output layer. So in our case, the hidden layer is this device. So we we don't have to train the weights here. All we need to do is train the external weights. Um, and so any data that is uh, dynamic and streaming. Um, this sort of device is, really is where the benefit um, w- would be, um, and and uh, we've also developed this sort of online learning algorithm where the the data streaming into the device and the um, the the projection of the data streaming out of the vi- out of the device, which contains the dynamic features we've demonstrated that we can learn from the dynamic features as opposed to the static features um, in, in, an, in an online way. Um, so that's that's sort of separate work that we've done um, using a slightly different version of, of this device.
0: Yeah, thank you so much uh, for those answers. And, um... You know we always talk uh, or we talk a lot about development of AGI and what would be necessary and you know like type of creative problem solving like humans do. I saw a video very recently where like a little toddler it was a baby almost still that wanted to get off the bed and put A bunch of pillows on top of each other to safely fall on the floor. I mean, this kid was tiny and did this problem-solving very creatively. Um, Do you think that this type, uh, nanowire neuromorphic devices, since you know you you have a closer to human basically processing will enable that type of problem solving when something comes up that di- wasn't trained on before thank you
2: i think that's a that's a really great question and we sort of touch on that in the discussion a little bit um pretty much for a system to be able to adapt to you know an external environment that's constantly changing both uh, dy- you know dynamically changing in time and in, in, in in space and in, in the kind of sensory inputs that are that are happening um that is kind of the idea behind you know what might be closer to this uh, agi that you were talking about or, or something that's more human-like at least um and so the ability to learn to remember um to have these kind of intelligent Uh, adaptation to external environments is what would be required for an organism or a system that is mimicking the organism in order to present something that might look like more human intelligence. Um, And what we've shown here is that we can actually implement certain, at least precursors to learning, precursors to memory that are very brain-like or inspired by the brain at least, um, in this kind of non-biological system and in, you know, a tiny amount of these wires. So if there's, you know, the, the brilliance with these wires is the scalability is is really cheap and really easy. It just needs to be kind of fleshed out and done. Um, you could probably create different modules of nanowires that might have different um, roles that um, you know similar to what different parts of the brain might have and you can train it to do that and you know we don't know what would happen when that that happens we don't know how they would interact with each other the other thing is these wires are pretty much two-dimensional or, you know they're, they're kind of laid out in a two-dimensional space what happens if we somehow make them three-dimensional or, or at least form them in in more of that kind of brain like you know uh, structure as well um we don't know what might happen in with those kind of um connections so this is kind of a, 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 a we've said this is sort of a an introduction to a breakthrough in in this kind of learning and and the idea behind this paper is people need to start thinking about how learning how memory how you know these these precursors for intelligence occur in the human brain how we can implement that in systems that are inspired by the brain rather than just keep improving uh, you know mathematical algorithms that train weights in ai systems um is denko adrian do you want to add to that
4: um i i don't have anything to add to that very nice succinct summary alan thank you thanks yeah thank you oh, yeah go ahead
1: no I agree with Alan I, I I agree with what
5: she said
0: yeah thank you for that um that clarification and description uh, because I totally agree you know I've read a lot of different reviews and even you know small books I don't know if you know Miguel Nicolelli the neuroscientist that did the pioneer work for BCI and Uh, important thing those scientists wrote was that if there's not an embodiment, basically, of a memory, of an experience, that creating a human-like artificial mind wouldn't be possible. But this is, you know, your technology development uh, is, is very different, so it creates kind of an embodiment of um of information which is really interesting. So are you maybe planning or working on hooking up a system to let's say a VR or something like that and see you know how it would react in kind of a simulated um world for starters?
1: <laughs> Zdenka, I think that's for you to answer.
4: Thanks. Yeah, it's something that we've definitely thought about, although we're not actively working on it right now, but we, we have thought about, you know, the possibility of maybe using this device as a, a sort of a robotic brain, um, if you will, um, and, uh, you know, to, to basically have that embodiment uh, feedback loop um, uh, as, as part of it. Um, but, yeah, no active work on that as yet. If anyone out there is interested in collaborating, please uh, ping me.
0: Yeah, just one follow-up fantasy (laughs) that I would have is, I don't know if you read about this memory transplantation basically through optogenetics. So basically what people did with rats, um, they kind of um, copied, like they made um, through calcium imaging basically, Um, the activity of neurons they visualized it and then um, copied it onto another animal and then they tested it they would perform better than usual um, in a task uh, that um, you know that would conclude that they had some previous experience but they actually didn't Uh, which is really interesting and my idea is would there be a way to um, you know instead of using you know in the end you can just use uh, voltage changes to reflect that and would you know an experiment that's probably very far-fetched i have in my head is you know take that those voltage patterns in the cells that light up through calcium imaging record those and um Give those uh, to your system, your wire system, and then you know, and then repeat that VR experience and see if it's you know if you could, could transplant this memory onto your wire system. Basically, it's probably very far fetched, but it would be very cool to try. I I don't think
4: it's that far fetched. Um... I, but I can tell you something that we've tried that's a little bit related to that. So because these networks have memory, we we have briefly explored the possibility of using them as a kind of a neural prosthesis um, to kind of form a band-aid or a bridge um, in in regions of you know neurons that are dysfunctional or um, you know are uh, 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 not working properly. Um, And so one application we we started looking at was as a retinal prosthesis, because the the reason why this is potentially feasible is because these uh, networks, these neuromorphic networks, they actually can produce spikes. And you don't need to have any special import signals to generate the spikes. So they produce spikes automatically. And Um, from everything that we've observed so far the reason why they're able to do that is because of the network connectivity so it's a collective response to any signal that comes in so in a very specific example like a retinal prosthesis the idea would be that you know the, the function of the retina and retinal ganglion cells in particular would be to take input signals of light um, and, and that gets converted into electrical signals. But then those electrical signals also get converted into spikes. And then those spikes travel down to through the optic nerve to the visual cortex where then they're processed. Um, and so we were looking at you know, whether these uh, neuromorphic nanowire networks could actually work as a retinal prosthesis to produce spikes that would be um, better understood by the visual cortex than existing, uh, you know, silicon chip based retinal prosthesis and therefore um, would produce a better reconstructed image by the the visual cortex.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting um, that, you know, that works that way. And then uh, if that works, How would you, let's say, you know, a lot of signal to noise distinction, you know, animals make have to do with emotions, you know, like fear memories are very, you know, can get very overpowering because it has a very strong priming through, you know, um, emotions that, you know, get um, primed by norepinephrine and all these neuromodulators. Is there something like that that would be possible in your system that kind of says, you know, this is really important, don't forget about this? Or would it have to be just a stronger, you know, would the input have to be stronger? Or uh, would, you know, how would would you tell the system, you know, this is a very important memory, this is also a good memory, but, you know, this is more important for survival, (laughs) basically.
2: I think, sorry, Stacey, go ahead. No,
4: you go ahead. I was going to say, Alon, this one's for you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I just think, Um, I think we don't really know, you know, yet how that happens in the brain. Like we know that the mechanisms to some extent of learning uh, rely on this kind of formation of uh, pathways or synaptic pathways, but we also have to acknowledge all the other cells and, and chemicals and, all that other stuff that is occurring in the brain that we don't have, um, you know, we can't mimic in our system. Uh, And so, you know, those might play a really important role in forming these kind of uh, long-term memories or or at least specifying which memories are more important or which things are more important to, to focus on. But in terms of our system, this is where the consolidation aspect comes into it where once we prime the system enough and we reinforce certain uh, pathways uh, long enough we see that consolidation so we see that the system kind of it remembers those pathways and so we're kind of priming it to we're, we're kind of telling it these are the inputs that we want you to remember and these are the important things that need to be remembered um and so to answer your question, to some extent we can kind of, we can control what the system thinks is the most important or the the things that we want it to remember long-term. We don't know if it can do it with multiple stimulus, stimuli. Um, So we don't know if we can ask it to remember, you know, five different letters and and burn all five of those patterns into the systems, you know, long-term memory We haven't tested that yet. That's something that needs to be tested. Um, And we also don't know whether or not that's something that could just be presented to the system. We don't have to, you know, um, reinforce it. Um, So the question is a really great one. And my answers are, we have a capacity to to impart, you know, this important kind of, signals to the network and tell it it's important but we also don't know the mechanisms in which it can do it on its own and we don't know if we even have the capacity to allow for that
1: if that answers it well
0: yes thank you so much and now if dr heidi vtr and kyle uh, want to ask questions please go ahead and uh, I also want to check in with you how much time you still have. And based on that, we'll, we'll you know, ask the questions. Thank you.
2: Um, yeah, I can probably answer a couple more questions, but I do need to head back to um, work at the moment.
6: Um,
4: yeah, same with me. A few more minutes, I think, yeah.
6: I'm curious what the stimulus, uh, um, what the stimuli are. And if, if you guys have noticed if there are spatial patterns or temporal patterns in terms of, uh, it's hard for me to really ask the question without knowing exactly what the nature of the stimulus is. And I'm trying to, uh, skim the paper, but have you noticed patterns in terms of, um, with these like step back processes, the, the distance between stimuli in terms of time or space? that are there market patterns and where these like um spikes are occurring that that you could that you could uh describe in terms of like expected uh results within a within a specific spatial framework or temporal framework if that if that makes if you if that makes sense i guess
2: adrian do you want to
6: answer that
5: uh i'm sure i understand the question sorry if, if you mind repeating
6: I guess the first question that makes it clear for me to describe is what what exactly are the the stimulus? They're just diff- different voltages, or?
0: Um, Kyle, I'm sorry, but we have the last couple that's fine, of minutes, that's fine, yeah. and we discussed no all of, of this, here so. Here. so I'm sorry. Yeah, um, Dr. Heidi, did you want to ask a question? I don't know.
7: Thank you, Katarina, and thank you, Alan, and the team. Actually, um, yeah, my question is, um, did you consider biomimicry for? Um, Funding your research, and uh, it's a way I know lots of people in the biomimicry um, arena, uh, even uh, Jane herself, uh, would be interested in um, such research because it's really a breakthrough. This is the first point I want to make here. Uh, the second one um, with the era of AI and uh, artificial intelligence, did you consider the hybrid intelligence as well and the digital twins? because this is the research I'm looking at um, at the moment for lots of solutions, which is especially the digital twins in terms of uh, curing diseases and immunology and uh, what Nokia been doing in terms of industry and funding again. So um, this is my question. Uh, How your research fit with the hybrid intelligence? Try to um, have this collective intelligence between the machine and the human brain and the second question, the digital twins and the era of digital twins, which is a newbie as well in the science. Thank you so much. Um, I, I can answer
4: that because the answer is short. So um, in answer to your first question, no, we haven't considered funding uh, related to biomimicry um, or uh, you know hybrid intelligence or augmented intelligence, but I certainly think there's, there's scope for that so I'd be happy to learn more if you want to DM me and, um, and yeah, we can go from there. Thanks very much, Dr. Heidi.
7: I
8: had a question. Um, Katrina, can I go ahead? Uh,
0: yeah, like, the, we, we uh, yeah, it depends on the speaker uh, if they have still. Yeah, one, one more
8: question is fine. That's awesome. Fine. Uh, thank you, guys. This is amazing. Um, I wanted to ask you, first of all, we're using nanowires for this. Uh, what kind of densities were you able to get in terms of like you know in in the brain the each neuron is kind of interlinked to ten thousand different neurons like and I was skimming through the paper maybe I missed it so that's my first question the the amount of linking that was done and secondly how do you plan to scale this mm-hmm. since uh, you know nanowires uh, processes are not like like a standard kind of uh, you know, um, in silicon uh, industry. So yeah, those two questions. Thanks.
1: Um,
2: yeah, so I think we we covered both of those things in the talk, but oh. we can re- re- repeat it. Oh. Um, we can't really know how many connections are uh, happening in the actual um, system itself uh, because we can't tell where a, a, a wire actually crosses over each other without you know, through just. Uh, normal imaging even uh, you know electrode microscope imaging is quite hard to tell that and so in order to you know uh, determine those kind of topological and structural things um, which i have a a paper a separate paper about as well um, we created simulations of the system um, and in the simulations we they're pretty much experimentally validated simulations um, that We created a certain number of nanowires on a 2D plane, um, and then we changed the density. So, in that way, we can control how many connections, what the average degree is, or the density kind of metric. So, to give you an example, the one that we have in this paper has 698 nanowires. This is the simulation 698 neurons or nodes and 2,500 ish connections. So, it's a relatively sparse. System, not too many connections compared to you know the brain, which would have thousands and thousands more connections. But we don't know how how that would actually be in the actual uh, system itself.
8: Okay, so since you asked, answered the last question. I'll I'll ask a new one: Is so based on this new hardware, like will there be any soft software abstractions? Because you know there is a lot of parallelization happening here lot of synchronous processes, so the yes. way we think about programs would be completely different, and so far we have just sequential, sequentially based programs and so would love to know if there is efforts toward that if not that's fine and, and, and so yeah that, that's and also the last one is how does the system unlearn something to to make it more flexible
3: may i may i um, jump in here i'm so sorry uh, our guests did say um, it was right after dr heidi that they had no more time and alan has offered to answer questions at his email which is in the chat so if you just want to copy that then we can say thank you so much to our guests and thank you to you as well for your enthusiasm and being here we, we need to honor their
0: time though Yeah, thank you so much and I apologize uh, for the noise again, uh, but thank you so much for taking the time, this was a really exciting discussion and um, and this is such an exciting new field uh, that you are working on. I think that holds many promises for the future, also in health and um, uh, we really appreciate you sharing this and also sharing your personal stories. Ellen, thank you so much. And, um, and we wish you all the best and all the funding. And I hope, you know, we are really looking forward to learn more about your work in the future, future publications for sure. And um, yeah, maybe one day <laughs> we'll hear you again. Thank you so much. And it was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you, Katerina, Victoria and everyone. Bye for now.
1: Thank you, guys, see you you later.
0: Bye. Yeah, thank you so much for everyone for coming and and for the questions. And Ellen, you know, said he would answer them. I I knew this would, you know, we could talk about this on and on and on in the future. Uh, And uh, we probably will. So uh, if you have more questions, either send them to me or to Alan Um, and um, yeah I hope to hear you all again soon Um, we'll have more rooms in the future so uh, yeah just follow the house and um, oh Audrey you're still here (laughs) Uh, what time is it where you are? are are you still okay to answer one question that VTR had about unlearning if the system can unlearn
5: it's, it's 4 a.m. here in Spain, but yeah, I can answer something, some questions if you want, a couple questions.
0: Okay, VTR,
1: go ahead.
5: Yes, I, I, I guess I guess I would like to answer to VTR uh, one question he said about scalability. And uh, the issue is not so much scale up the system, but scale down the electrodes. So uh, in this world, we were working with pretty Big electrodes in in relation to the size of the nanowires, and in the simulations we are able to pretty much use individual nanowires as kind of um, electrodes. So for me, this is one of the biggest challenges uh, we face in this kind of field: it scale down the, as I mentioned, the reliability of interconnectivity, but also the the size of the
1: electrodes, scale them down so that we can form much more reliable and multiple connections.
0: Yeah, thank you. Uh, I don't know, VTR, if you're still there, um, but VTR also asked a question that I found really interesting, if the system can basically overwrite the memory or unlearn maybe even the primed ones, because that's kind of a very important part of the brain, like deleting actively some synapses. So um, does the system also actively delete or overwrite?
5: So this is one really interesting part of the system, in my opinion, is that unlearning is kind of happening to some degree without our control. So it's kind of like how do you forget in in your brain? It's like you don't, you cannot force yourself to forget something. Actually, if you do that, you will tend that and that remembering more the things. So in the network is rather similar. You connections you don't use tend to disappear and lose the strength. And this is the way we forget,
1: basically, controlling with time and space, space time control.
0: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that's a very important aspect of the system. It's it's really fascinating. Um, the more I'm learning about it, um, so do you think, you know, how, my last question would have been, you know, how long do you think it will take for a system like this to be implemented in, let's say, robotics, you know, AIs, um, and so on?
5: I don't believe such a long time. As Senka mentions, there, there's been approaches to, to start implementing this system in kind of modular uh, applications and i can i can imagine uh, these modular applications to be functionable in in really relatively short time
0: that's really that's really wonderful news also from the aspect you know of having um less energy consumption and you also you know you also mentioned that it is, you know, easy and not expensive to um, to have or to assemble. So um, do you think it kind of will democratize, you know, fast AI development also for places and companies that don't have like huge funding to start with?
1: yeah sure but uh,
5: i think uh, with this standard still a huge research effort to be taken before kind of submitting to more commercial applications but regarding the availability and price, is quite a affordable alternative in my opinion and yeah i can imagine being being a substitute eventually but of course there is a lot of road to 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 cover yeah
0: yeah, for sure. But um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. You know, I, I read about uh, a company that now wants to um, create an electric autonomous car in Africa. Uh, and they were, they are supposed to start in 2025. And I was thinking about, you know, my... Car. <laughs> my autonomous electric driving car is very stupid a lot of times and i really hope that developments like yours will make those type of cars much safer uh, because they're really bad at reacting in the real world so fingers crossed thank you for your work and thank you for staying up until 4th 20 (laughs) a.m. That's so nice of you. Thank you so much.
5: Thank you. Bye.
0: Bye. Have a good night. And yeah, thank you everyone for coming again. Uh, Join us again. Um, And yeah, feel free to send us questions if you still had them. And um, yeah, uh, we'll have for sure on Wednesday then Science Newsroom. Um, where we will cover, you know, new articles that came out and discuss which uh, one, maybe which scientific, you know, groups to then invite, to give a talk, to take a deep dive into the, um, the paper. So, yeah, thank you so much. And um, I hope to hear you all again soon. Thank you. Thank you good night. Closer woman. Three, two, one. Bye everyone. Thank you.